the most corrupt school district in America. Why is math once again under trial with the public? And some bright news in the education world today on The Citizen Stewart Show. So, Ravi, how are you doing, man? I haven't talked to you in the last week. Are you traveling? Where are you? What's going on with you? I was just in uh, I was in London. I just got back and just gearing up for the holidays here. We're kind of quiet in uh, the lost debate world other than doing this podcast. Most people are off this week, so I just been catching up on long-term items. Uh what about you? Are you sticking around the homestead for Thanksgiving? Well, you and I both have one more trip after Thanksgiving and then after that for the oh, rest yeah, of Miami. the year. Yeah, we're going to be in Miami together. And then after that, the rest of the year is all sweatpants and uh, and possibly bad food. <laughs> You're going to get annoyed with me because I'm spending at least six weeks down in Costa Rica where I'll be recording from. So I'll tell you all about, we'll talk all about the Costa Rican education system. It's such a hard life for you. It's a hard, hard knock life. You know, I should mention, actually, I talked about this on the Eight Black Hands podcast that I participate in. Uh, last night, uh, in the last week, I was in Philadelphia uh, for a couple of days, and it was a um, a big event for black male educators. My, my friend and colleague, Sharif el uh hosts this annual thing. And man, to see a whole bunch of like black male educators, they're only 2% of the workforce in the United States. Oh only 2% of the American teaching force are black males. So to be in one room where there's like 800 of them coming together around education is this big, beautiful like thing. You just love to see it. Uh, and it means so much for the students. We had young people there too. So for me, I mean, I know we have another bright light that we're going to talk about in this show um, for the week. But this for me was a really big deal to see so many black men. America gets black men wrong just in general. And I just want to say this is, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, as a, a a front message to what I'm saying. We get we get black men and black fathers wrong. Black fathers are invisible. Black men are not stereotyped to be uh, the ones who should be in, in the lead of intellectual things or in charge of children and, and great dads or whatnot. But we really get it wrong in education. And we're not producing enough of them that come through schools like the one that you ran, the ones that you ran in Nashville, who get prepared well enough to go to college so that they can actually become the people who come back to their communities and teach. And what was so interesting this made me think of you. I had this moment where Sharif was talking about a couple of eighth grade students that he taught who have now, who are at the gathering and who are all our teachers now. Oh, wow. Uh, two of them have PhDs. And these are people that came to his schools. And I'm like, it must be an amazing, amazing thing to know you ran something where kids came through and they went out into the world and did something really well. That's got to be like this huge feeling. I won't have it. You know, maybe you've had it because of your, your background. Yeah, so. It's amazing. My kids are just hitting the workforce now. Most of them, the, the oldest kids we have, if they did everything right, are still in their late college years. So they're not quite out into the workforce yet. But I had an amazing experience this weekend. I was watching the Alabama football game. And one of my former students was a, a, a defensive lineman for Austin P, which was taking on Alabama. And he's this amazing kid whose twin brother is in prison for a pretty heinous crime and whose mom has been homeless most of the year. And to see him earning his college degree for free, participating in athletics, which I have mixed feelings about, but just to see him thriving like that, you know, and he's a smart kid with a real major out there. That was just, that was one of the best things I've seen all year. And I know he hustles. So, and then I was just Googling him and seeing what the scouting reports say and everything. And he's, he's doing his thing. It's really cool to see. That's going to make you feel good. Kind of like having kids, you know, but you just have many. Yeah. <laughs> you have way more than <laughs> yes. the rest of us. <laughs> well, that's what I tell my parents, which is among other reasons, I say, I think part of the reason why I've delayed having kids is I spent my 20s and early 30s being responsible for so many kids that I, I care so deeply about. And it's not the same or whatever. I don't try to compare, but I care a lot about those kids and I put a lot of energy into it. So I just think I just needed a break. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, a little bit of selfish time. You well, know? I don't want to ask you. I know we're about to jump in. I don't want to ask you how old you are, and I'm not going to, but I'm going to tell the world who's listening to this right now. I have My oldest is 31 years old, uh, and I have no grandchildren, uh, and I'm very desirous of grandchildren. So I did send him the copy of an article. Two Indian parents had sued their, their son or daughter. I can't remember which one it was. Oh, my God. For $500,000 for not providing any grandchildren. And uh, and uh, it was kind of a, a gentle nod to him 
just to say, you know, I'm not above <laughs> taking on other strategies, <laughs> just so you know. Um, anyways. Well, my brother... My brother did a huge service to my entire family, my older brother, by having two grandchildren already. So it just took the pressure off us. There you go. Yeah. So now you guys, the rest of you guys, see, I would handle that. I'd be okay with that. Um, anyways, yeah. lawyers getting ready to go blazing uh, on the uh, firstborn. And if you're <laughs> listening to this, my firstborn child, I love you so much. Uh, if you're listening to this, I love grand the idea of grandchildren just as much though. Um, anyways, so listen, let's jump in. What we have promised with this show that I, I want to be very honest that I don't think we have delivered on is the idea that we have said in our marketing that we're going to talk about some of the dark forces uh, that take place in public education. And I have a story today that is part of the dark forces part of the show that we should be talking about. We won't be able to do it justice because it's so deep, but we will be able to get into it just a little bit. And I want to say to listeners, we're going to have more of this to come because I feel like between the two of us, we have seen quite a bit right? Of the politics yeah. the public doesn't know about <laughs> when it comes to schools. And we're going to keep They're doing dirty. this. It's dirty. Yeah. It's dirty. It's not the fun and loving thing you would want or expect for kids in public education. So today we're talking about Stockton. And the reason that I want to talk about Stockton Unified Public Schools and the Stockton area is because I've traveled this country and I've traveled in the United States and I've never seen a more corrupt school district anywhere that I've ever been. And I've never seen a story not get told to the extent, when they say that democracy dies in the dark, when the Washington Post says that, that describes Stockton's corruption for me because Stockton used to have a newspaper, a local newspaper of note that had nine education reporters and now there are zero. It is an education desert when it comes to reporting, which means you can get away with a lot because the only press or journalists to catch you on anything are 60 or 70 miles away and don't really care about your little podunt. In 2020, I want to say 2018 to 2020, things were looking up for Stockton. They had a superintendent, a high-flying superintendent in John D.C. He had a high-flying staff that he had brought with him from many places that were all very high-level educationists, people who would normally not be in a, in a district this small, uh, 38,000 kids. And they had a mayor, a rising star in the Democratic Party, a mayor known nationally in Michael Tubbs, who was a one big of the best. part of this? One of the best. Do you know Michael? Oh yeah, huge friend of huge friend of mine. So Michael Tubbs is a is a local guy. He's a local boy done well, really. So they had everything working with them, and there came a day where John DC resigns and says, basically, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but something to the effect of, "I will not be part of any of your corruption. I, I will not operate at this you know low of a level." The board had had some political changes, so. Let's come up to today, and we'll go back through some of the, the earlier details. But and, and important to note that Tubbs lost. Yeah, he lost his reelection bid, which is important to note that he wasn't the guy driving this corruption. And that will become very important to this story. That'll become very important to this story. So right now, they're underneath all kinds of scrutiny. They had a grand jury report that came out recently that basically said that the management and the board of trustees were not adhering to policies and procedures regarding financial transactions and funds, which is a very kind way of saying when you start reading through that there's a lot of irregular stuff happening at the district that starts at the top and actually bleeds through the rest of the organization. Among those issues to be found out were there were serious deficiencies in the care and duty by senior uh, administration, the board of trustees, and a lack of transparency to the public and to the board. The board said that something as simple as board meeting minutes were not being posted, whole meetings were being forgotten, school board members were showing up unprepared to make major decisions, and uh, whole conversations about large and meaningful contracts were being cut short by the board president. Very weird look to, to, um, to the leadership there. But because of this, there were lots of cost overruns in the millions and millions of dollars. The, the facilities and construction contracts were all a little bit fishy. It's almost an open secret. I spent a few days actually talking to people in Stockton, and it's almost just a, a known thing. Like when you live in New Orleans, for instance, you just know that there's some irregularities with your government, right? I grew up in New Orleans. We just expect that. But Stockton has them in oodles. And to go back to where Michael Tubbs is important, Michael Tubbs was this highly educated, uh, sharp, progressive leader who was doing some really novel and interesting things in Stockton like UBI 
and and other things. He was getting a national profile, and and DC comes in as superintendent. So they have this high flying government, and there are some locals who are being cut out, and they're locals who normally are not associated with people of the of the highest character. I'll just put it that way. One of those people is a guy who they locally call Motec, Motec Patrick Sanchez, who starts a website called the 209 Times, and it fills a massive gap because there is no local journalism. And that actual platform grows to two to 300,000 followers who are are listening and watching and depending on it for news. And he drives anti-Tubs and anti-DC content all day, all night, next to like car fires and robberies and rapists and whatnot in this kind of like really ghetto platform of of like social media platform that was just toxic as all hell. And many say that it's responsible for Michael Tubbs not not winning his election and for DC wanting to quit. But what's interesting is after they both are no longer in town, the guy who leads this starts working for other political candidates. And all those candidates end up on the school board one ends up hiring the superintendent, the new superintendent, and the guy himself, Motec Patrick Sanchez, gets a job at the district as kind of their comms person. <laughs> and he keeps running. <laughs> he keeps running this for-profit, you know, platform. Yeah, he's he's what I would like to call a political arsonist. And he absolutely was responsible for Tubbs's downfall. You know, Tubbs is one of these guys who was hyper competent, you know, boy done good from Stockton, has the perfect story, hustled, attracted all sorts of outside funding for a city that was struggling to get attention, was one of the rare mayors who was focused on children, you know, just repeatedly focused on kids and even took on other difficult fights. Like, you know, a pet issue of mine is how golf courses get tax exempt status and how that's a travesty. And he went at that issue. And so he's just, he was just a great mayor. And this guy created this website. And I think this website is really instructive for anybody trying to get any work done locally anywhere. It's like in many cities and towns across America, there's somebody out there who is a really capable political operative or or communications person. And sometimes those people are sociopathic political arsonists like this guy who don't have any morals and who can take a whole city down with them. You and I have come across these people across this country. This guy happens to be one of the most effective and evil versions of this, and he's bringing a whole city down with him. And so, Chris, I guess the question back to you is, what can be done about this? Because it seems like we, meaning the forces of education reform and forces for you know competent government on behalf of the most vulnerable, took a big L here. Like, what do we do about these types of people, and in particular, what do we do about Stockton? Well, there's a number of things that are like breaking down in this case. Number one, the loss of the local media. The local paper of record is a big loss because you can make up any story after that. If you fill that gap, you can make anything you want it to be, and you call them political arsonists, and we call it, we've called them conflict entrepreneurs. There's one of these in in almost every market, but they can't be as effective because there's major media. There's like regular media to kind of keep the record straight. So I would say that a lot of people can invest in there being a local competent media as much as possible as one thing. But there's many other triggers here. I mean, the idea that you can hire people into a public entity like a school district without any interviews or background or public, you know, sunlight on the the, the process, the, the idea that there's so much, there's such lax oversight here. You and I, let's just talk about this really quickly. When we think about charter schools and all of the drumbeat about how they're not accountable and how the public schools must be accountable to the public and how they have to take all comers and because, you know, you have a democratically elected school board that it must mean that they somehow are kind of immune to the very thing we're talking about right now. Right. That's actually something, that's a fiction that we have to help the public lose. This idea that just because you're elected, just because you have a public entity, that there's all kinds of mechanisms. We're talking about a city right now where California does not have enough mechanisms in place to address the things that the grand jury found. Massive cost overruns, weird contracts, contracting processes that don't make sense to anyone, school board members who don't know the books, a school board member who couldn't even get the financials from the district that they are governing, that they're over, a staff at the district that refused to turn over everything to the grand jury and to the school board, right? 
We're talking about an entire rogue operation that's possible in the United States of America in the year of 2022. This is still possible. So this fiction that the public has, that just because it's public entity that it's highly accountable, is getting in the way of us actually having highly accountable mechanisms in place, like things that the Cal- that California should be doing. First of all, this is, I told you, this is an open secret in California. Like Stockton's just this corrupt and people know it. Right. What is the mayor doing? What is Tony Thurman doing? What is the you know the state superintendent doing? What are lawmakers doing in a state where it's an open secret that you have one of the the single most corrupt kind of uh, public entities in the country? And you have to ask why not. Imagine if it was a charter that had this kind of issues. I mean, these things are shut down. The charters that have have any financial impropriety, the leaders are gone. Sometimes they're sent to jail. We know some of those people. They are shut down rather quickly if they don't write the sh- ship really fast. And they should be. We believe that. Anybody who's a believer who's worth their salt in charters believes that part of the accountability is why we like them. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's no accountability here in Stockton right now. And this is a complete mess. And it comes down to the fact that this is a political machine, an incredibly corrupt one. You talked about this guy who runs 209 Times. One thing that's important to note here is a lot of these people he's that are getting elected that are part of his circle are getting favorable coverage in his media outlet. Mm-hmm. And some version of this story happens everywhere, right? Like we're going to spend some time on Nashville where I spent some time uh, running some schools. There was a guy there on our school board who had a complete stranglehold on the press there. So it wasn't one press operation. It was basically, he was a former journalist Mm -hmm. and he was also a former operative for the governor. And he would intimidate everybody into reporting what he wanted. And just like this school board, he flouted sunshine laws. He would often text with journalists outside of his public communication and email outside of his public email address about matters affecting the school they didn't disclose any of that kind of stuff. He'd have drinks with reporters. You couldn't get anything truthful written about the district if he didn't want it written about the district. Mm-hmm. And you can get many false things written about the district mm-hmm. if he wanted those false things written mm-hmm. about the district. And the same is true of charter schools. I see this stuff all across the country. There are people like this. It reminds me of this this HBO documentary about this this Murdoch family. Are you familiar with this family? That was like a law firm. I do not. I'm not. In the South Carolina. Yeah, basically there there was this like this family for 50 years ran the South Carolina county until they got so ahead of their skis and so brazen about it that the town just basically turned against them. And at a certain point Stockton's got to do this. Now, I do want to shout out there's this one journalistic outfit that I read some of these articles about this story called Stocktonia which seems like a either a nonprofit or something. So they seem, I think they seem pretty new. Maybe they're, they're a response to the 209 Times. I think it's a former journalist. And I should say right here as a plug, I believe in citizen journalism. I'm called Citizen Stewart. There you go. I run a citizen journal, a journalist site. I've ran more than uh, one citizen journalism site. I don't think, as a former school board member, I can tell you that I don't think just because you work for the paper of note means that you're getting the story right either. Right. We have a lot of people that are politically motivated working for political, I mean, working for oh, yeah. regular news. Look at the too, Nashville right? scene, Tennessean. They, they print, they've been printing bullshit for 20 years now on education. So Yeah. So, I mean, you had a, a paper in Stockton, that, like I said, that had nine p- reporters, which meant that you had a reporter who could dig in on a story, different right. stories. Like there's some insurance fraud, you'd have one person, but you do have a lot of other local areas where there's a need for a citizen journalist. Because the paper of note, Minneapolis is a great example. We often have young people who are the fourth or fifth person to start covering the district because the newspaper doesn't care about the education beat. And sometimes they just take what the what the district tells them and runs with it. They they run a story that basically sounds like a press release. So yes, there's a need for it. There's not a need for there to be no other backups that get the public. Like we can't have the public being uninformed about the most important piece of government there in their area, right? Everybody pays for it. We put our kids through it. You should have good information about it. But aside from that, the media is only one part. You said it. This is a state, California's a state, that when it has come to charter schools, has run multiple investigations and report to say that their websites aren't inclusive enough, that the way that they give information to parents isn't good enough, right? Like they've really crawled up (laughs) the back end of charters in so many ways that it would seem kind of 
it seems weird that they have a major school district in their state that is this much of an embarrassment. I, we can't do the story full justice. So what I'll say to, to listeners right now is uh, please, uh, if you want to keep following up on the story, number one, just Google Stockton Unified and and uh, corruption. And it'll start pulling up links that are interesting for you to read and to watch. And also just look at some of the, the stories done on uh, Michael Tubbs' exit from the city. Yeah, And you will fall down a rabbit hole. Yeah, It's a big dark forces rabbit hole. The one thing that we figured out by listening and, and talking to parents locally, though, is that they have one part of the story, but people have jobs, they have lives, they're not sitting around um, yes. investigating what their government is doing all day long. So you have a lot of people in Stockton don't know that they're sending their 38,000 kids into this dark of a, a institution that really has no commitment to educating their kids right now. They've lost all the people in the district who are competent enough to keep the focus on kids. Yeah, my prediction on this story is this feels to me like a guy, the two or nine times guy, like somebody who's going to be in cuffs at some point. It, it just it mm-hmm. feels like that to me. It might not happen right away. But there's just too much smoke here, uh, mm-hmm. the kind of financial mm-hmm. corruption going on here. And financial corruption is some of the easiest corruption to prove. So, Chris, to wrap this all up, this is a district with 37,000 kids, but that is projected to have a $30 million deficit by 2024-2025. So $30 million deficit for 37,000 kids. Part of what's going on here is they are washing hundreds of millions of dollars in federal rescue dollars, and that money is set to run out by 2025. And they've been spending this one-time money on ongoing costs and and also just not having financial control. So Lord knows where this money is going. They disbanded their grants office in 2021. Uh, Their board of trustees is ignoring their own policies, including they hired a chief budget officer, obviously a critical role in this situation, without a search and without a screening process. Lord knows what that person is doing. And so they're probably going to be put into receivership. And my sense is there are going to be some feds looking at this. And I think that's our best hope. I'm not sure I, I trust the, the the good stewards of uh, of the California legal system to handle this well, but they may prove us wrong. This feels like a federal thing to me. Mm-hmm. And we should say that there has been whispers and conjecture that there's an FBI investigation going on right now as we speak there, and that most of the people internally working are newbies. And the people who are working in the most important offices, like facilities and in the budget areas, are very much newbies to the district. So this looming takeover, this looming kind of deficit Actually, watch out for people. It's a big deal. Well, Chris, let's talk about something that makes us think. There was this article by Jay Caspian King in The New Yorker about the culture wars around math. There's a really fascinating Mm -hmm. history that we're not going to spend a lot of time on here about this guy named William Hurd Fitzpatrick, who was in the early 20th century, basically called math an intellectual luxury and wanted to de-emphasize math. Uh, because he, among other things, he felt like it, it biased towards a quote-unquote ordered thinking, and he wanted kind of a more creative, fluffy version of instruction, and he was kind of embraced by the progressives, John Dewey, the Columbia Teachers College, and in part, this led to a movement that completely changed the way math instruction was taught for a period of time. So from 1900 to World War II era in New York, and post-World War II era in New York, a lot of things changed. So for example, in 1909, 57% of high school students took algebra. By 1955, that was 25%, so less than half. At the same time, and not unrelated, there was a huge boon to just public schooling generally at this time. So in 1890, fewer than 7% of kids, uh, 14-year-olds, were in high school. Only fewer than 7% kids who were 14 went to high school. By the 1930s, that was three quarters of America were in high school. So obviously something was going on there, but everything starts to change around mid-century, Sputnik, yada, 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 where, you know, in this war with the Russians, you know, math instruction takes new prominence. Kids are starting to take algebra. And basically, King says this was the beginning of a cycle that we've had in this country where there are certain forces that either want to de-emphasize math or change the way we're doing math, make it less sort of structured in a certain kind of way. And then there's always these people who are like, 
you know, traditional math, let's learn it in every subject. Let's do algebra in sort of lockstep, potentially leading up to calculus. And I'll pause there because there's a contemporary debate around this. But essentially what he's saying is this cycle has been playing out up until this day. Yeah, it kind of feels like, you know, everything in education has had this cycle, though. Like, it feels like it's a tug of war between, you know, the progressive educators and more traditionalists, you know, just in general, not just in math, but this math one was new to me. Like, I've heard about this sort of thing with reading instruction and pedagogy just in general. And there's like, you know, there was a massive kind of management takeover of education, you know, to standardize things that had the same ebb and flow between the, no, you know, all kids should just roll around all day and eat paste. And then, you know, the other side was like, no, all they should do is sit in a corner and count the number of dots on the wall. You know, it's just like, so it (laughs) seems like there's been this back and forth forever, but I never knew that math. This was an interesting article for me to look at. I didn't know that it was was so long-term. I just remember in the seventies, this was a big deal because, you know, my era was the the fuzzy math era where they started like coming up with really kind of, yeah, it was really fuzzy math, like the new math. I remember my parents having the same reaction I had after Common Core, my parents saying, I don't know what that is, like me bringing stuff home and they're looking <laughs> at it because they, you know, they were educated in the 50s, right? So they're like, I don't know what yeah. you, you guys are learning today. So it was interesting for me to see that this is longstanding. Yeah. And it's the reason why I put think on this one and not you know, mad or hopeful is because there's a little bit of everything in this debate. And one way to zero in on this is what Kang talks about, which is this debate around the California mathematics framework which is currently being proposed. And essentially, it's, it's guidance for math instructors and school districts and schools across California. And the drafts of this framework have a couple of things in them. And I feel differently about some of these subcomponents. One is that uh, they're recommending that alternatives, they're recommending alternatives to tracked math for advanced kids in early education. So we've talked a little bit about this, like tracking and not tracking, et cetera. So that's one thing they do. They're kind of against tracking of students, meaning grouping students by mm-hmm, ability mm-hmm. and separating the more advanced uh, from the less advanced in earlier grades. Two is they want to create data science as a track, as an alternative to algebra. And an earlier draft had the elimination of algebra in middle school altogether to keep a, quote, level playing field. They also want to incorporate social justice lessons into math. And I feel like There are versions of each one of these things that I feel very different about, but we can go through these in order because I don't think Mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. a simple debate. We talked about tracking, so maybe we'll start there. I think what grade you start tracking is really important. I feel very different about tracking in 12th grade, 11th grade than I do about tracking in second grade math, for example. Yeah. I mean, in this article, though, it talks about studies that basically said that kids that learn in a heterogeneous learning environment for math meaning a detract learning environment, do better. Question for you on that, though. Yeah. I, I read that to say that the, the kids who are struggling do better in the heterogeneous environment, but I didn't see what it said about the more advanced kids um, who I imagine do better in the higher tracks. Not, And that's not, I'm not, you know, I, Jessica Levin's not on this podcast, so we're, we're, <laughs> I'm not here. <laughs> we'll invite her on in future episodes. So I'm not... I'm not trying to go there and say like whether the trade-off is worth it or not, but it seems like that study, at least to me, what I was reading, it seemed to suggest that that was good for the students who struggle. But it's hard to imagine that the, the high, more advanced kids benefit. It said very specifically, the findings suggest that detracking reform had appreciable effects for low ability student achievement and no effects on average and high ability student achievement. Okay meaning that it's good for the kids that need it and it doesn't do anything to take away from the kids that don't need, you know, heterogeneous learning environments. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, you know, there might be kind of non-math uh, attributes or not attributes, non-math good things that come out of heterogeneous learning environments, right? Like, you know, seeing yeah, people agreed. at different levels of struggle and having to do peer-to-peer kind of like, you know, cooperative learning might be a thing that a lot of math people aren't ready for because a lot of math people, especially on the conservative side, kind of just cringe at any of those things that connect them to humanity. Yeah, and I and once again, I, I think I think heterogeneity is especially important early on. I think as kids get older, they really differentiate both their abilities and their interests, and I think it's actually more important as you go through school, college being the most extreme version of this, but 
as you get later into school, I think the differentiation is more and more important. We've we've had that discussion slash debate before. The second part here is really interesting. Well, can we just stop there for a second, just for one thing? Let me just say this one thing. Not every school is the same and not every program is the same, right? And not all kids are in school together. So there are like math magnets, for instance, or there are like schools that are like the the blank academy of math and science. You know, my my son right. went to one of those schools and it wasn't a good fit. It was a district school. Yeah. It was a regular district school. Was, I think it was kind of magnet-ish or it was one of those schools that had a focus. And we moved him to an art magnet school. But the kids that really would groove on that math and science thing, actually, that other school was a, you know, a better fit for them. And it wasn't selective. I'll just put it that way. But, you know, if I was a parent that was really worried about this, I don't, it doesn't have to be about tracking or us all being in the same classes all the time together. Yeah. But it would be nice if there was a middle. Yeah. Like for the common school, the regular school, there was a way for all kids to learn together. Right. And then there could be other options. Yeah. That's an old concept, of course, the common school. But there's a second piece of this, which I find really fascinating and I largely support, which is the creation of data science as a track, as an alternative to algebra. This is essentially what I said the other week, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. why is algebra the only option? It seems like data science is really important. How to read statistics is so important to how to be a good citizen, whether it's reading polls, studies about health risks, obviously COVID, you know, people were, they didn't understand how to weigh one risk against another. This is like a thing, and I, and I think the ability to, to look at it, an academic study or a, set, a series of data and make meaning out of it is really important in almost all areas of life. And I think that dovetails with something that's going on, which is the Gates Foundation recently announced that they're devoting $1.1 billion over four years to math K-12 initiatives, essentially moving their entire K-12 budget, it seems, over to math. And mm-hmm. one of the many things that they're going to prioritize is is prioritizing applied statistics and data science as pathways in high school. Not not as the only pathway, but just making it more prevalent. And so I both both agree with the California math framework for doing this and with Gates for, for making that one of their priorities. Is that really a contest though, like between algebra and data science? Is it really an either or? Thing. I mean, well, let me ask two questions here. You would know better than me. So the first one is, isn't algebra somewhat foundational to like a scaffold to other forms of math? And is there like a one-to-one replacement with that in data science? Is data science really kind of a replacement for that particular building block? My sense, and our listeners can correct me on this, my sense is that algebra, it's not like they don't want it. It's not that they're saying they're not going to teach algebra. That was, I think, what some very well-intentioned and incorrect progressives were trying to do is get rid of all of algebra, which is silly. But Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's just limiting the amount of algebra and then giving the kids an option to say, all right, I want to go the calculus route or I want to go the stats route, which is something Mm -hmm. we talked about before. Because like the amount of algebra that builds upon itself to get to the point where you're doing calculus is pretty extreme, in my opinion. Whereas you could say, all right, I've learned the foundations of algebra. I'm moving now into statistics and probability realm. Like, cause you think about how much probability and statistics did you learn in high school next to none, at least in my high school mm-hmm. compared to the years on years and years of algebra that I learned. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of, that's part of what I think they're getting at is saying, all right, like let's, let's create a pathway. But when I, my reading of Gates is not that Gates is saying no algebra. It's just saying, let's create another branch of the tree mm-hmm. where kids could choose. Mm-hmm. I, you know, a part of me not being an expert on this particular part, like a part of me as a parent, I just like, I, I worry about removing things that seem foundational and basic in the plot. And it's like, I don't know enough to argue with the people that might say, yeah, but there's, you know, there's yeah. a way that, that we could do this differently. But I mean, I came mm-hmm. up in an era where you, you know, you had a procession of math. You had these different kind yeah. of blocks that build on each other and, you know, and God for, and for a long time, the reform push, the push was to get more kids to for sure be taking algebra two in eighth grade or so. Right. Like, uh, we had these milestones like reading by third grade, um, you know, well actually coming prepared for kindergarten, reading by third grade, eighth grade algebra, and then a high school that prepares you for either college or career. Like we had these kind of milestones in our head. So this feels a little bit like, like I would worry about, we would replace it with something in six years from now, we would go back to it again. 
we'd be like, yeah, that sounded good at the time. Yeah, but this is this is the the challenge of upgrading curriculum, right? There's there's always people like you and me who are like, this is the safe way to do it. This is how I did it, and change is always going to be uncomfortable. And honestly, like I think there are a lot of bad foundations out there in education, but I think the Gates Foundation they have gotten some things wrong. I think their class size thing, for instance, was wrong. I think they were wrong to not double down on charters because they were once a, a much mightier foundation when it came to charters. But I do generally think when it comes to not even just education, but like you know, mosquito nets in Africa or public mm-hmm. health issues, mm-hmm. et cetera, they tend to be pretty humble and adaptive. And to me, I, I'm glad this is in their hands where they're saying, all right, let's figure this out. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's some really strong people over there. And I don't always agree where they come out, but I feel very differently about them than some of these other squishy political foundations now that are trapping in some of the ideas that you and I talked about last episode, where where the motivation for some of these other foundations is some belief that hard things are bad for kids of color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm mm-hmm. glad that's mm-hmm. not where we're coming mm-hmm. at this issue from. I don't get the sense, at least, that Gates is coming out. Well, let me say this because I'm kind of Gatesian in my kind of background on these issues. Actually, I don't think that Gates was wrong on a lot of these things. I think they were iterative in the way that they learned. I think that's the way tech works. And I think that's where their money came yeah. from is like you don't build like a PC on your first try, right? Like you iterate, right. iterate, iterate. And um, and if you're good at it, that's the pathway. I think in education, we have so much gotcha that it's like your yeah. thing on small schools was terrible uh, we'll never let you live it down well small schools actually what came from a lot of research and actually still remains i think it's dumb to call it a loss yeah that's fair i actually just let me as an aside i was watching um sam cedar and the majority report those guys such a leftist these days <laughs> it's, it's really i mean listen i like to i'm a broad-minded guy i like to listen to different things and watch different things right yeah, uh, it kind of pushes my thinking so um they're talking about twitter and elon musk and all that stuff falling apart and they get to this part towards the end and they're talking about you know these billionaires just take their money and uh have their way with public systems and whatnot and then they talk about gates and he says sam cedar says yeah you know, he just brought all his money to New York and he just ruined everything, totally changed the trajectory of education forever for good and broke the whole thing in New York and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he had this initiatives and the schools are still reeling from the small schools, blah, blah, blah. And it's the first time I've left a comment in a long time. Like, I'm not a comment person. I'm a, I'm a Yelper guy. I will yelp the hell out of your restaurant. <laughs> God forbid. Thank God I'm not running a Chinese restaurant in your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will yelp you. I'll yell you into oblivion. <laughs> but this is the first time I just wrote, like, often, guys, you make such great points about things that feel informed. But this was a moment for me where I had to judge whether or not I'm being bought in on other issues because you, know, you know so little about this one. This is a moment, though, isn't right, it? Right, right. I feel this way often when I'm listening to some expert, I'm listening to some expert, and then they talk about something I know deeply like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, man. Have I been totally duped in all these other things? But okay, one one thing I want to lay down on this sort of foundation war stuff, which I didn't expect us to go there, but I like talking about this stuff, is the Zuckerberg Foundation, which is the exact mm-hmm. wrong way mm-hmm. to go about this. Drop a ton of money in Newark on, I think, a really good theory, mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. some things wrong, get some backlash, and then completely retreat, even though the, the sum total of your investment is doing a lot of good for kids. Mm-hmm. And- to me, that that no more of that. You know, I, I I think like I think we could talk for a long time, and maybe at some point we will talk about some of the things Gates did. And because my interpretation of the way they interpreted their small school stuff was they kind of backed away from it, even though there was some good stuff to learn from on that. There's a point at which districts have to take the ball and run with it after you give them a thing, or whether you start a thing. Yeah. And sometimes, like you know, it's the biggest kind of like yeah. thing we always say is like implementation is everything. So it's, you know, oh, we tried small schools, they didn't work, so small schools must be the problem. Oh, we tried big schools, so big schools don't work, so that must be the problem. We tried big classes and small classes. We tried, you know, traditional math and whole language and reading and phonics and blah, blah, and nothing works. At some point, you have to realize that nothing works. What's the common denominator in the nothing ever works thing? Like, it's it's really convenient. Oh, this Foundation X brought in all this money and they bought us all these books yeah. and it didn't work, right? Right. Uh, um, small schools will never be a bad idea. Even the EPA, 
has a lot of research on small schools and how the big schools are actually bad for learning for certain kids, for certain groups of kids. Mm-hmm. Turns out white yeah. kids actually do really well in Columbine-sized high schools and kids of color don't. And actually, it turns out mm-hmm. that kids of color do much better in small schools than they do in the big ones. Thus, a lot of charters that are under a lot of control, well-controlled and well-maintained, small environments, know everybody's name, can break up problems into small sizes, have more teachers yes. that work together and collaborate, not as depersonalized, whatnot. So this thing around small schools didn't work, and it's Gates' fault. That's going to keep being every philanthropy that tries anything, that's going to keep being the story. But isn't that such a useful shield for people that don't ever want to answer any questions? Yeah. There's nihilism and cynicism around this kind of stuff. My sense is there's also a there's a way to adapt schools to take advantage of the good parts of small schools, even if you can't make a small school. So an example is, I think you can group kids together in bigger rooms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like let's say you have three classrooms and three adults. Mm-hmm. You can, And we tried a little bit of this at Republic. You could bring all the kids together in a big room, almost lecture hall style, and take and have one adult who's the really good classroom manager, who's often not the best person at explaining things, mm-hmm. kind of manage a large percentage of the kids while the other two teachers pull kids into smaller groups for remediation, tutoring. And, and, it, and it allows you to keep the kind of social structure of kids from different learning styles and backgrounds together while also taking advantage of adults in a different way. And you can create these little small communities of, of teachers in there. And the more you can add adults to that who aren't even necessarily credentialed teachers, but maybe they're college graduates, or college students who can tutor, but they're not ready to teach or other types of teaching aids, or even more advanced students mm-hmm. who could pull other students and tutor each other or kids from other grades. Like that to me, I want to see more of that. I think I recently saw a story about that where they had to do it because of shortages that they had to pull teaching teams together and put all the kids in one big place. And it turns out it was working well. Yeah. No, I did want to like, before we skirt off of this issue, because I know we're going to move to the next segment. But before we do that, I do think that it was one more of the math topics that uh, that we left out. And it's it's definitely one that's good for the lost debate because we're going to disagree. And it's this point around uh, ethnomath, uh, ethnomathematics. And California, Seattle, and some other places in the country wanting to use math to, to make math more relevant for people who traditionally don't have math identities, which is often kids of color, uh, minorities, racial mm-hmm. outgroups, cultural outgroups. Those are some of the ones that tend to struggle the most in math, except for, oddly enough, I will say this, people from language communities sometimes struggle more in the other subjects and do well in math because it's the most literal and it has the the, the mm-hmm. least language involved in in confusing things. But anyways, so this thing around kind of what has been derided as woke math, woke math. Oh my God, they're trying to make math woke. Why don't we start with you, Ravi? Because I know where you're going to start at with this one. What do you? What say you on the like? I kind of feel like I know where you're going to come. No, from. what do you mean? I know where? I think. I think this like is going to be your get off the lawn moment. But go ahead, tell me what you think about this. No, I, I, I have no problem with this. I, I think like we shouldn't make cringeworthy examples of this that simplify kids. What was the? I saw some example when I was looking at the reading that was just like insulting to communities of color. That it's like some white person's caricature of what a person of color is counting on a daily basis. I can't even remember what it was. So I think like it's, it's good to have these things written by a diverse group of people reflecting a diverse set of perspectives. And I think that we don't have to do it literally like here's 39% of our students. So we're going to make 39% of our problems reflect this. I think we should roughly get our content diverse enough so that it's not just one person's perspective. And I think there's one direction we got to head because I think it's largely been from a white suburban perspective. So if we move in the direction of more diverse cultures, I'm totally fine mm-hmm. with it. Like, I have no issue with it. I think people who get mad at this stuff are silly. I think when you get into the activism curriculums and things like that, I think that I'm not against it in principle. I just think we have to be careful to be inclusive because, for instance, if we're talking about California, this is the most populous state in the country. There are all kinds of people with all kinds of political beliefs in that state. And so I think we should be careful not to push politics in our schools, even if I agree with those politics, right? So that, that's yeah, we don't push it. First of all, politics is in our school. 
I just want to say if anybody, if, if anybody is, is, believes that uh, politics is in our school, I'm sorry, this is the United States, they are. And to uh, build on something that you said, people, please go to your Google, go Google right now, pimps and hoes math test earns eighth grade teacher a timeout. Uh, a teacher at Burns Middle School in yeah. Mobile, Alabama, was placed on administrative leave after she distributed a questionable test to eighth graders, which included some pimps and hoes type of questions. Yeah, I just want to say for the record, I'm not for that. Well, this is what I'm, I'm saying not. about like what people's idea of what culturally responsive teaching is varies widely. So I, I feel weird taking a stance on it in general. But in context, there's a lot of culturally responsive teaching that I would support. I'll put it yeah. that way. Um <laughs> Like I used to do a Malcolm X book club myself, like with a bunch mm-hmm. of kids, and it was really interesting. Like I, I learned a lot with the kids. Well, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. I'm good with that. And listen, like you know, what I would also encourage people. Well, first of all, let me stay in Mobile just for one second. Uh, here's one of the problems: Tyrone knocked up four girls in the gang. There are 20 girls in his gang. Yeah, here we go. What is see? the exact percentage of girls Tyrone knocked up? <laughs> This is on a test. This is this is this is real life. Okay, so I'm not for that, but but I will say this much. If you go and look at the so-called woke math in a couple of different states, look for their rubrics. And if you're a person who's, you know, unaffiliated with education or whatnot, all I could say to you is dig down to what the districts actually talk about. They will have their rubrics somewhere. You'll be able to find what they really mean and then yeah. answer the question whether or not you're for it. Unless you're in Stockton. Unless you're in Stockton. Then you might have to dig it up. You might, know, might not yeah, you might there. have to dig it up <laughs> some kind of way. So, um, Well, let's move on to our hopeful thing and get out of math territory, which, you know, as a parent, I just want to say gives me hives. But there's this story in the 74 about rethinking high school, upending the traditional subject structure in Indiana. It's about Purdue Polytechnic, where teens combine subjects and they choose those projects. They choose projects as part of an early college exposure in the hopes of ushering them into high paying careers. I have visited this school and I want to say to folks, this is the joy of traveling the country, not just talking about education, but going and seeing. This is a bright, happy, like loving type of environment where it's clean. The, the facilities are fantastic. The kids are great. Uh, the young people obviously are bright and taken care of. And it's it's uh, diverse. Like, you know, there's all kinds of kids at this school and it's connected to the American dream. Like you are as a high school student, you are in the pipeline to going to at least state college and coming out the other end better off than what your neighborhood looks like. I love it as a uh, as a talking point, as a thing to show people. This is something we should we should point to. What was your thought, Ravi, as you were looking at this? Well, like you, I focus on results, and the results here are really good. So since graduating its first class in 2021, this school has sent more than twice as many students to Purdue as the entire Indianapolis public school district, most of whom are students of color. I love interdisciplinary projects. I think personalized learning, if done well, could be excellent. In the hands of the wrong teacher, it could be chaotic. But if done well, it is the best kind of learning. And... I love that students have a choice over their schedule. Like they they can choose different schedules and work in uh, six week cycles. So there's obviously you could choose, you could try things, you could you could determine, hey, I I don't like this, but I like that. Almost like when they have medical students on rotation, so that they can learn. Oh, I like pediatrics, or I like I want to be OBGYN, etc. I love it. I love everything about the school. I really want to go visit it. If I find myself uh, in Indianapolis, I want to check it out. I think it's really awesome that that XQ and Emerson invested in the school. It seems like a great investment. It's one of those schools that when you go to it, you say, where was this when I was coming up? Like when I was going to my boring high school, because oh, yeah. when you walk through it, it's not even designed in the kind of boring way that high schools are. It's a really nice place. Yeah. Tell me what it looks like before we go. I know we're running out of time, but give me, a, give me, just give me a sense of what it looks like. It's one of these places. It's got more like a workplace type vibe to it. It's got exposed brick, kind of San Francisco style exposed brick. Like you nice. could drive a car right into, if you wanted to display a car or something like that, they have engineering type things in there that it, it just looks like a a thinking invert like I could see adults being there, not kids. I could see it being like full of like tech yeah. workers or something working on a car or yeah. some some engineering. They had this kind of I do want to read pull out this quote from the article on it. Less than half of all US high school graduates are ready for college or career. And a full 40% of 12th graders were below basic in math, what we just got done talking about on the most recent national assessment for educational progress, which is the national report card. 40%, like a full 40% of 12th graders were below basic 
Now, Ravi, just help people understand approaching basic, proficient, all of those things. Low bars. We've talked about this before. Because really, on to me, all of those feel like kind of pregnant. They feel like I'm kind of pregnant. What the hell is below basic, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're inventing new ways to say that things are okay. Basic, by the way, shouldn't even be, it should be proficient or not mm-hmm. proficient. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm okay with advanced because if you want to add more ways to measure how high kids can go, great. But I want to know, is the kid proficient or not? And like, if we want to call it failing and really failing, great. But basic to me is a cop out for adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It gives them an opportunity to say, all right, like we're not the lowest rung. And this is what I, I like. Uh, when we talk about stories like this for these high schools, these alternative schools, alternative programs, things that are not in the normal system, folks might ask, why do you even need that? We, we pump $700 billion into the traditional public schools every year, and it's not enough, and we still need to put more money into them. They're still struggling. Why do you need these other type of schools? And my, I could have lots of responses to that, but I would just say the one is they get they become plot points in success. Like you can, you, sometimes you have to prove what you can do outside of a system and show people. Yes. I went and visited and looked at this directly. I, I encourage anybody to go to a place like these type of schools where there's hope and there's something new happening and they've redesigned the schedule, the budgeting, the teaching, and how they actually do school. And you can see it for your own eyes. And then you don't have to ask the questions about like, why do we need alternatives? Or why can't we just double down on what's already not working? You need to see it for your own self. And I'm happy that they exist. That's why this is in the good portion of our our show, the hopeful portion. There will be more of this in future shows. Yeah. We'll have more of these. Uh, yes. Um, and maybe you and I can even do some on-site visits, Ravi. We could go to like some of these great, you know, amazing schools. Let's do it, man. I'm in. When I first started my first school, I did this thing called the Building Excellence Schools Fellowship, where I must have visited 50 mm-hmm. schools over the course mm-hmm. of two years. And over the years, I would do it when I was running schools, but lately I haven't been out there. So I would love to get back out there on the road and check out the best stuff that's happening these days. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate this conversation as always and every week. This is like one of the things that I look forward to. You can't get me to talk about anything that I love more than our children's intellectual development, like what we're going to do for kids to get them uh, to the next uh, next generation. As always, I like to say that I love being a member of the Lost Debate Network and this show, The Citizen Sewers Show, is a product of the Lost Debate Network. If you like the show, please share it with friends, subscribe, leave a great review if that's something that you want to do, and check out the other Lost Debate shows. You can find Lost Debate on YouTube or any of the platforms that serve you up your podcast content. Again, this has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show with Chris Stewart, Chris Citizen Stewart, and Ravi Gupta, former Obama um, operative. I don't know if it's operative or if it's just like a staffer or what what it was. But operative sounds ominous. I love it. It does operative, um, and we enjoy you as yeah. a listening audience. Thank you so much for listening to us. We will see you again next week, or we'll actually be speaking with you again next week on the Citizen Stewart Show. <laughs>